0: Hello and welcome to the Armenian News Network Karung Week in Review. I'm Aspet Bedrosyan and along with Hobik Manucharyan this week we're going to talk about the following topics. Kocharyan closes in on Pashinyan's lead ahead of the snap elections. Pashinyan goes to Europe.
1: And we have with us Aspet Kochikyan, who is Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the American University of Armenia, and Emil Sanamian, a Senior Research Fellow at USC's Institute of Armenian Studies, specializing in politics in the Caucasus. Hello and welcome everyone. Hi, Hi everyone. Hi Hoviq. So we have uh, two topics, but uh, one of them is pretty expansive. I think we can talk for, for a long time about it. The regular update of the MPG polls is in. Uh, I guess they're going to do one every week until the last day, uh, last week of the elections, which is June 18th. So we have two more weeks of polling left. This one shows some interesting findings in that. Kocharyan is, uh, or the highest on Dashing to be precise, is continuing its upward bound trajectory and ratings. Uh, so uh, it went from 17.5% to 20.6%. Meanwhile, civil contract is continuing on the downward path, going from 22.9% uh, to slightly uh, less than that to twenty-two point four percent. I wanted to discuss these findings with with everyone. And what you see here: prosperous Armenia uh, went up a notch. Uh, Republic, uh, not Republicans, but the Republic went down. Uh, I don't want to sort of read all the numbers, but I just also like to add that these numbers that we cited are based on the answers to the polling question. In reality, mo- what most pollsters do, or what, what most analysts would do is take out the population that answered i don't know uh, was difficult to respond or refused to respond and scale the rest of the results accordingly because most of these uh, would not be like the voters uh, so uh, emil i just overall what what's your opinion on the dynamic of these polls and these results that we're getting
2: well, you already pointed out that the dynamic. Uh, Kocarian is right now in a statistical tie with Pashinyan. Uh, and the trend, of course, is uh, favorable to Kocarian at this point. I think it's uh, legitimate to uh, be able to predict actually an outright victory for Kocarian or a coalition arrangement or at least a tie uh, in the second round. So uh, if you back up a little bit about this poll, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, obviously, uh, good to have this polling, uh, any polling, um, and this particular pollster has sort of earned uh, his uh, credibility over the past few years. I think his um, numbers have been very close to the actual results. If we look at uh, both uh, 2017 and 2018 elections, they were very, very close. Uh, of course, 2017 elections was, was when the Republicans were, Serge was still in power, and 2018 is when Pashinyan was already in power. If we look at December 2018 results versus their, uh, polling, uh, they basically predicted, uh, the numbers within one to two percentage points for all of the uh, parties that made it into, uh, into the parliament. So that's Pashinyan's party, Marukian's party, Tarukian's party. <clears throat> So, uh, they're a credible organization as far as their sampling. Um, of course, uh, we still have a couple of weeks. Things can change. This is uh, still in progress. Uh, you know, things are still developing. But, yeah, there's uh, little doubt that, uh, uh, you know, Khrushchevian uh, is uh, winning the election. Um, as far as uh, overall, I mean, it would be great to have a couple more polls that come from credible sources um unfortunately uh, we don't have another pollster that does this regularly and uh, uh does this uh, publicly uh to be able to you know cross check results uh, there is the the international republican institute uh, sanctioned uh, or uh, you know uh, paid for poll but uh, they don't come out on time their, their latest poll came out uh, a month almost a month after it was conducted and of course it was already outdated by the time it came out
1: Right. One thing
3: I need to add, Hovik, uh, if I may, is that uh, regarding the IRI, IRI polls, more often than not, they are uh, actually commissioned by various organizations, by various groups, international organizations, and they usually have the first look at it uh, way before it goes to public. And as Emil pointed out, by the time it becomes public, it becomes quite uh, outdated. Um, and uh Another thing about the polls, uh, about the polling, as much as the MPGs, uh, MPGs are reliable uh, polling sort of service, as a polling service, one of the biggest problems that I have uh, witnessed about this, and again, talking with various international and local observers, is the utilization of phone polling rather than, you know, in-person polling. Uh, in general, there is an overall trend about, uh, or overall criticism about uh, telephone polls, uh, and their validity, and how do they reflect uh, or the reality on the ground. So that in itself is a bit of a, of a challenge as well. It's not uniquely Armenia Armenia issue, uh, but it is uh, you know, one of the major handicaps of any kind of a polling, telephone polling. I think that's always
2: almost become the standard for polling, the telephone polling, because everybody has a phone these days. There's very few segments of the population that cannot be reached by phone, right? And, uh, in terms of finding a sample that is uh, random enough and representative enough in terms of, I mean, different regions, different social cl- classes, I think that's, that's, that's acceptable. As a matter of fact, in Armenia, I remember the first phone polling began, uh, back in, before 2008 elections. I remember, uh, uh actually, Aravot a newspaper would sanction a polling, uh, and it would be a phone-based polling in Yerevan only because, you know, they, at the time, the, the phone penetration in Armenia was still, kind of patching the provinces, so they did the for form polling, and it was fairly accurate representative in terms of, you know, at the time, Serge uh, Sarkian, and others uh, in 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 the, in the poll. So, uh, yes, it would be great to have, uh, like I said, an additional pollster that, you know, would have done regular polling like this, uh, but this particular pollster has, I think, earned its credibility, so we have a general picture of where things are shifting towards. They could still shift in a different direction, but that's where they're going right now.
3: Yeah, and and one thing we need to add, yeah. uh, sorry, well, one thing we need to add that, that back in 2008, one of the other easier ways of uh, getting a sample, uh, a geographically well-distributed sample, is that uh, you might be using a landline as well. Uh, so with landline, you already know that when you're calling a number, the person is, the 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 person answering the phone is in a region, in a certain region or a certain area of the country. Whereas with a cell phone, you know, there is also, uh, yes, the cell phone penetration, the phone penetration is much, much higher, but also people's movements is much higher. So even if they would ask what part of the country you live in, Uh, You know, they could be easily someone who might be coming and going to Yerevan and their influence and uh, their political sort of exposure, exposure to political concepts and ideas and campaigns might be also influenced by the fact that they're moving back to the capital city or they're mostly in the region, uh, in a village or in rural areas and so on. So a lot to question there, a lot of a lot of ifs and buts.
2: In this, though, it would be where they're registered to vote rather than when, where they reside, right? They could be residing, working in Iran, but registered to uh, vote right. in <clears throat> in a rural area that may be an hour away or something. But uh, uh, the, the important part is where they're going to vote. and uh, I mean, the important part is whether they're going to vote or not. I mean, it's a small country, so it's not like it's a, right. it's not a federal system, right? It's a national vote.
1: Right. By the way, I, I believe uh, what they do is uh, something called random digit dialing. So just digit style uh random phone numbers until someone picks up uh and i believe that's when they ask them where do you live and would you like to sort of you know participate in our poll uh the response rates it doesn't mention on this one but uh from the previous ones i've observed it's about like 20 to 30 percent and uh remarkably the response rate from at least for the previous polls has not changed well that's another thing that i've seen frequently mentioned in polling as uh potential, you know, caveat.
3: You're absolutely right, Jovic. Yeah, I mean, I heard that in both IRI and MPG polls, the response rate hasn't gone up uh, uh, higher than 25 percent respondents. Uh, And this is why it goes back again to the issue that it's much, much easier or much more reliable, if you want to call it, to have, uh, you know, uh, pollsters out there, you know, in different regions. uh, In person. People and asking questions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and the response rate, obviously, would be higher and uh, sampling would be much uh, better represented. But regardless, I mean, polls are polls, right? Uh, uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics. You can change that and yeah. say lies, damn lies, and yes. polls.
2: Yeah. No, I mean, even, even, even in a country like the United States where you have a massive number of uh, pollsters that are polling constantly and polling for various reasons and polling before the election, uh, you know, we've had a situation before, for example, uh, the, the previous election, 2016, when, you know, most polls shows, showed uh, Clinton winning, uh, but uh, Trump won in the end. But you could see even in uh, polls that showed Clinton winning that her support, relative support was eroding. So that, uh, the notion of regular polling, what it does give you is the trend picture, right? So it shows one candidate gaining at the expense of another. That's almost the only important thing you get out of the polling uh considering you know the sampling issues that are always present
1: so what do you think about the following question then they also broke down the response based on uh Yerevan uh, regional cities so all the capitals of the different uh marzes uh and then uh, villages and here there are some uh interesting changes as well so uh, previously Hayastan uh, dashing led in Yerevan in cities they were neck and neck and in villages they were trailing greatly to uh civil contract now I mean, even the tie in the regional cities is broken so in Yerevan Hayastan is leading 25% or 24.6% to 15.1% so that's like uh, almost a 10 point lead in the cities uh outside of besides Yerevan it's 23.4% versus 29.4% so also a significant lead But in villages, uh, civil contract is leading 31.8 to 14.5%. We've talked about this before in the past and why uh, this happens. But, you know, I wanted to ask uh, if uh, Emil, I guess uh, we see top contenders visiting the regions and I guess uh, they're trying to. maximize or minimize the opponent's vote as much as possible what do you think are the different regional strategies of civil contract in hayastan
2: well again if we if we go back in every single election every single election cycle uh, we've observed this trend where the challenger main challenger does much better in yerevan uh, does uh, you know better in major towns uh, than in the rural areas, it's just the na- nature of uh, the Armenian body politic, I guess, and it probably repli- is repli- most most likely replicated in most countries like Armenia, uh, where politics occurs in the capital. So the new trends they're set off in the capital, and then they kind of permeate through the through the rural areas. And uh, you know, um, and every once in a while, you would still have like I remember back in the '90s, Armenia had this one village that communists had uh, hold on for many years after the fall of the communist regime, right? then you had some areas where uh would still be strong and then you would have uh you know areas where dashnaks are still strong so even after the uh, you know they're no longer in power so uh that is repeated every election cycle it's not surprising that trends are set in yerevan and then they start to permeate through uh major towns and then into the rural areas rural areas by their you know very nature very uh you know closed uh, political systems right you have one village uh, leader and you have uh you know basically his uh everybody else kind of relies on his uh, favoritism right in terms of providing uh, i don't know seeds or providing fertilizer or providing uh te- you know equipment for agricultural work etc so and also uh, media access. Very, yeah and in terms of uh, what people have access to or choose to have access to at this point you can live in a village and have access to any kind of information but uh, but uh, really you still have kind of uh, very uh, uh, you know orderly kind of uh, situations in terms of you know people de- most people kind of tend to uh, delegate uh, decisions on to as far as who to support and to their kind of uh, local senior person because uh, the more uh, rural you are the more isolated you are the more vulnerable you're you are Whole economic system is so people just don't want to risk it in terms of, uh, you know, who's who's the boss now? Yeah, that's fine, it, that's how that's how usually uh, I hear from uh, from people in villages. Of course, there are many exceptions, of course, there uh, not everybody's like that, but general picture is usually like that with whoever is in is in is in power versus whoever the challenger is.
0: Is the internet available ubiquitously through the villages?
3: Absolutely, I, yes, absolutely, yes, it is, but uh, yeah.
1: so in the case of the internet. I think we talked about this in the past. Um, the number one recommended thing that people see, or uh, especially like I was doing the most recent tabulation, is 50% of the view traffic goes to perfect TV and similar channels. So if you talk about the internet, then pro-government, um, the, vo- the pro-government voice, especially fake news, unfortunately, uh, wins. And then in the regions as well, the, you know, the, the number one broadcaster or the only broadcaster in most cases is uh, Armenian public TV, which is also controlled by the government. So that's what I meant by media access and pro-Pashinyan sort of messages uh, being predominant in the regions.
3: Well, there's one thing here, but uh, also making the duality or highlighting the difference between Yerevan and, uh, and uh, the villages or, or rural areas or urban versus rural areas, is that uh, in Yerevan itself, where almost half of the um, or more than half of the voters are are um, sort of registered, is also which district of Yerevan uh, are we getting? I, unfortunately, these polls do not break it down, and I, I think that makes a lot of difference uh, of the polling or the the, the mood or the uh, sort of the uh, perceptions in Shengavit versus in Avan
0: or in
3: between Nubarashen. You know that makes a lot of difference.
0: It right. would be interesting to know uh the yeah which districts uh, the votes came from.
3: I think most of the respondents
1: would not even know their district, so I guess they could give their address, uh, which would allow the pollster to tabulate. I don't know if they do that, yeah, but that you're right that that would be interesting. I talked about this uh, last time, and the intent to vote I just want to quickly mention it in general, like about fifty five point three percent said they'll definitely participate uh 11.9% they'd likely participate and then 10.6 likely no and 20.7 uh, definitely no and 1.5 refused uh, or said difficult to respond so the question I had, which is not answered by the pollster, is whether the intent to participate would change based on region would be, uh, and maybe this is what you have to pay for. And this is what all the political parties pay to see, you know, which region is most, you know, encouraged and discouraged to participate in, and work on those regions. But last time when we talked about this, Herat Mikhail, I said, traditionally it is those who live in the villages who participate more readily. Do you think that Things the dynamic could change because I think that uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's the highest on Dashing's goal to increase participation in general because that's how they would probably get a more favorable re- results to them, and uh, a, a lower participation would, would would help civil contract essentially. Do, do you agree with that statement?
3: I think, uh, you know, there's there's always that problem in all countries, right? I mean, in the United States, one of the things we've seen uh, constantly is that higher participation favors the Democrats, whereas lower participation uh, favors uh, the Republicans. I think uh, the dynamic here in Armenia, to understand it, it hasn't consolidated uh, enough in the last two, three years to know if uh, usually a civil contract, let's say, has a has a solid number or a solid amount of supporters who would turn out regardless of what they do? Uh, or is it the Hayastan on Dashing, Armenia faction or Armenia, uh, Armenia uh, faction that actually has that? Um, I think you're right to some extent, but then um, I have witnessed this in the last um, at least couple of uh, couple of uh, weeks uh, when going from Yerevan to, to the various regions, especially to the north. It's quite interesting to see that uh, the support, uh, Kocharyan support in, in general, because at the end of the day, people are voting for Kocharyan, not for the Dashink, regardless if the ARF is there or the uh, other, uh, other parties there as well. But in Yerar Kunik, in Godaik, for instance, in Davush, in Vyotsor, Definitely, these are areas that, regardless of what uh, the voter turnout would be, uh, Kocharya might not perform well uh, in those. But again, that's why the focus is on Yerevan because half of the votes are in Yerevan. And one thing I have to add, also, in different conversations, and it's not—it's a sample. It's not in any way scientific, granted, but. I have noticed more and more people who are actually saying that we want to participate, we want to go and vote, regardless of what. I'm just going to go and vote, even you know, casting a blank a vote, because I don't want my vote to be stolen. There is a quite a large number of those uh, there as well. So the intent to participate can only show so, so much. Uh, or only, you know, so so little uh, about uh, how the things or how the support would, uh, would vary. So this is actually quite interesting for me to see how people's uh, civic duty, if you want to call it, and their uh, realization that their vote matters and they're not willing to sell it or exchange it uh, has been quite, uh, has increased uh, dramatically in the last four, five, six years.
2: One thing I would also point out is that uh, we look at what the parties, the sort of the top uh, seven—not parties, but li- political leaders that are in in the, in the field right now. Right, Pashinyan, Kocharyan, Sarukyan, i guess slash uh, Serge serge sarksian really more important than Vannatsian in that alliance. Maroukian, Marukian and Aram sarksian Well, ter doesn't make the top uh, six, I think. This is the same parties that won seats in 2017 election, right? We had in 2017, we had Republicans, uh, Bargavac, Yilk, uh, and ARF. Now they're structured a little bit differently, but basically Yilk is split up into three. Uh, But uh, you, you still have the same players in 2021 as you had in 2017. So this is one change that is observable to me in terms of in the past, prior to 2017, almost every election cycle you normally know, you would have some players that would be repeat players. You know, mostly that's Republicans, Bargawach and the rest. But uh, uh, you would always have a change in who the main opposition challenger was. Uh, so if you recall, you m- went from, uh, you know, the vazgan madur led alliance to uh, the Demir-Chan-led alliance to Rafael Vanityan-led alliance, sort of. Uh, you don't, you didn't have that change this time around because you had an opposition force come into power, right? And, uh, the formers, so to speak, may, were able to maintain their, uh, the role of the main challenger, which was not the case in all of the prior election cycles. So that's, that's another thing that I think, I don't know if it talks about some kind of political consolidation in terms of political preferences, but certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's a reflection of the resources that, uh, Uh, an opposition that was just in government has versus an opposition that has not been in government for a while or has never been in government would have, you know. So that's, uh, that's one thing that's observable in, in this election cycle. Basically, we have not had a, we have not had a third, third party candidate sort of, so to speak, rise in this
3: election cycle. Uh, but one <laughs> with one caveat here is that you know the consolidation as you mentioned, has been dramatic, except for Barkha, Uh everything else is sort of uh, really uh, mixed up uh, in the you know in the election in terms of the alliances so for instance, uh, you had the mystep alliance, which is now running as civil contract alone, and I think there is a there's a reason for this because probably whatever uh, membership they would have the civil contract will have in the parliament they want to make sure that they have a stronger Uh, hold on their members, uh, because otherwise in a faction, it might have been more difficult for them to control uh, any possible runaway uh, sort of uh, MPs. And, you know, there's also the fact that the ARF, the first time ever in elections, has actually decided to join a coalition, a faction, uh, probably uh, motivated by the fact that uh, in the previous election, they didn't pass the threshold. And then, of course, there's the name recognition, right? You know, you have uh, some of these alliances, uh, for instance, with the Badibunem uh, uh, sort of a faction or, or the electoral bloc, you have Vanetian, but you do not have any of the major Republican Party uh, names uh, except for uh, um pardon, uh, Darun Mar- uh, Margarian, uh, who actually is sort of not necessarily in the top uh, Republican Party uh, echelons. So uh, there are so many things to analyze there. For instance, my, my analysis of this is that probably the Republican Party feels that they are not going to be able to make it or they, they have less chances of, of passing the threshold and they don't want to burn their you know the top leadership. That's why they actually let Van take the lead and they have no... Uh, major names on the list uh, from the party itself. Um, their hope is that they might end up uh, making small kingmakers, not necessarily big kingmakers, unlike uh, Zarukyan. So all of these are also factors in terms of uh, making this election a bit unpredictable.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, there is there is a bit of that. Asped, what do you think about the trends in the polls that we mentioned earlier? For example, when these polls and the election season started about a couple of months ago, Civil contract was in the thirty seven to forty percent range, and now it's down to twenty two and just as dramatically, the highest on dashing started barely clearing the thresholds and now it's in the twenties so <laughs> um is it the last month of events happening in Armenia, or was let's say the original uh, levels fictitious?
3: No, I think the trends are definitely reflective of what has been happening in, on the border and in border infringements and uh, by Azerbaijan and issues related to border security. But I think more importantly, especially looking at the, the uh, surge of Hayastan uh, dashing, is uh, the great PR machine that they have. I mean, they actually, they started campaigning without campaigning uh, even before uh, right. the official time happened. Again, in my trips, in my drives in, in Armenia, in the regions, I could already see at least three weeks ago about PR uh, billboards of Kochadian, and he was just quote-unquote advertising his book, right? It's not campaign, it's advertising my, my book, and he right. had the chapters uh, of each, uh, the title of each chapter in his book as, as taglines and so on. But also I've been following the, the PR sort of uh, component, especially of Hayastan Dashing. They do have, I don't know who um, who's, who's running the PR, I mean, I'm sure there's a professional a team, but the images that they are actually actually uh, projecting has a has a big impact on the trend
1: and it's omni channel right it's everywhere um uh, it's also I, I, someone told me that you know there there is no pr company in armenia that could do this so you know they were saying that you know th- there's an outside pr firm involved but...
2: what 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 is there? what what is it they're doing that an, an armenian company could not do i don't understand
3: well the question is not what is it that that it's not what my, they're not doing the question is that there are no well informed or the scale it's it's by itself I mean one of the things if you look at for instance one of the uh, billboards or one of the campaign pictures or photos that they have uh, is um, um, you know the treetop uh, names on the highest uh, on dashing uh, standing with white shirts and black uh, pants you know that's actually it's one of the interesting things you know simple uh, and uh, and eye-catching but then they're actually rolling their sleeves up. Um, so it has this element of, you know, thinking strategically, what would the image be for an average citizen when they see this? Um, again, I don't know if it would make any significance if it's a local firm or an international firm, but... Uh, knowing and following what uh, Robert Kochari and the transformation of Robert Kochari in the last 20 years, since he came to power in 98 uh, and the following two three years, he hasn't been shy and he's willing to learn and he's willing to actually follow the instructions of the PR uh, sort of firms to the, uh, for this. So I think that the trend is very much influenced by uh, the PR machine and on the contrary, the civil uh, civil contract. Uh, is relying on populism and basic, you know, just clips here and there without much of a, comparatively speaking, without much successful PR machine. But I'm not, by saying this, I'm not undermining at all the fact that the last month or so, uh, the border uh, issue and security issue is uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, sort of challenges that Kocharyan is better paused to or better poised to uh, to, ch- uh, to tackle, at least in the minds of many people.
2: Yeah, Yeah. there's no doubt that in terms of objective criteria, in terms of objective picture, I mean, this is just two different types of, uh, you know, worlds that are kind of colliding there. Uh, you know, Kocharyan is the only leader of Armenia who actually uh, left the uh, leadership of, <laughs> of Armenia on his own will and managed to, you know, kind of find a place for himself, you know, as a board director of a major... Russian or inter/ slash international company, right? And so, actually, continue to kind of do things that are professional. You know, meeting with people regularly, and uh, sort of having to put the suit on and uh, uh, sort of keep keep in shape, so to speak. Uh, all of the other former Armenian leaders, you know, they t- tend to either retire into kind of, uh, you know, into uh, you know, non- into private life, right, without any doing anything basically that's publicly visible. So, and then we have, you know, Pashinyan, um, you know, a, a complete failure of, uh, everything you can fail at. And of course, uh, he still represents kind of, uh, the, uh, the, the need, uh, for this, the failed part of Armenia, failed part of Armenian uh, public in terms of, you know, uh, economic failure or lack of, uh, progress in terms of, uh, you know, need poverty, come, come out of poverty, etc. His promise is still there that, or at least some people still believe it that if only he would just do a little bit more of squeezing of the reach, we would all become a little bit better off, so that that promise is still there, but uh you know of course, with all this else, everything else happening of course it's uh the credibility of it is shattered uh, considerably
0: Emil, I have a quick question here: Some of the parties or alliances like Badi bunem are barely reaching the levels of the threshold to make it into Parliament. Assuming that there's a risk and they won't make it. We already know some of the difference between the leaderships of these various alliances. But why, having said how much of a priority it is to take Pashinyan out for these alliances, why is it that they cannot come together to
2: ensure uh, their goals? I'm sorry, I'm not sure I understood uh, who cannot come together for
0: example uh, the, the Badi Bunem folks right and uh, the highest dashing folks they're not terribly far apart ideologically, but there are differences between their leaderships. Why wouldn't they put those those differences aside and expand their alliance
2: I'm not privy to what the discussions were prior to decisions whether you know they would set up their own list or uh, set up a block or whatever but my hunch of it my hunch is that, uh, first of all, Kocharyan, uh, you know, I don't think he's forgiven Serge Serksyan for precipitating this whole, uh, I don't want to use the, the S-word, but basically a shitstorm that, uh, you know, caused by Pashinyan coming to power. So, I don't think he wanted to see either Serge or any of his people in his list. Or at least didn't want to, didn't, wouldn't offer them positions high enough on the list. So they decided to, you know, just to to go on their own um, mm-hmm. with this. But I mean, it, again, bringing Vanechyan into this picture, you know, it's not like Vanechyan had any kind of rating. I mean, it's just it shows a kind of you know uh, lack of focus on part of Serge Sarkisyan. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in this whole in this whole situation,
3: oh, I Emil. Mean, one of the things that you mentioned about Vanetsian and Patri Bunem and the Republican Party and their lack of and and uh, Kocharyan not forgiving uh, 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 the about this can also explain could could also explain why the top Republican Party leadership is not in uh, represented in the in Bunem uh, faction. Uh, so it is. I think uh, there is a lot of. Uh, components there. And let's not forget, even though there is not a single party except for civil contract that supports Pashinyan at this point, uh, maybe there might be one or two smaller ones, but at the end of the day, egos. I think there is a huge, huge component of egos and personalities. This is something yeah, that is very, very important to keep in mind, uh, To uh, and Kocharyan is not someone who, who would let go, right?
2: Yeah, one, so, one of the, one of the interviews I saw, I I didn't actually watch the whole thing, but there uh, was an interview with that Arata Teosyan did, uh, with Armen Gevorkian, who I think Armen Ghevorkian has sort of always been the right-hand man for Kocharian and, uh, sort of the, the person he trusts to deliver results and go and, you know, knock on the door. And, uh, right. you know, I, my, my, my very first impression of Armen Gevorkian was, uh, I think it was, uh, what was it, uh, early 2000s or maybe late 90s when I came to Armenia and, the, and he was running around the airport trying to uh, make sure that, uh, you know, the customs or other employees of the airport don't rip off uh, passengers on <laughs> arriving from abroad. Armen Georgian was delegated from, he was an aide to Kocherian at the time, he was delegated to uh, the airport uh, to make sure, you know, this place looks, looks a little civilized, more civilized than it was at the
1: time. Are you talking about the MediaMax interview?
2: Yeah, going back to the MediaMax interview, what uh, Armen Georgian said there is that, uh, uh, difference between Serge Sargsyan and Robert Kocherian, uh, he said that, uh, Kocherian is much more of a macro manager and, uh, Serge Sarkian is a micro manager, kind of basically, you know, getting into details of everything. And, uh, what is, uh, you know, is also kind of, uh, apparent here is that, uh, Kocherian is, uh, you know, Ready to, the, the, you know, to, uh, to accept that some things he doesn't understand very well, for example, how to run a, poli- how to run an election campaign and would delegate it to somebody like Armin Gevorkian or people that Armin, he would trust Armin Gevorkian to select to, uh, deliver, uh, things that he cannot deliver himself, you know, like, a nice picture, I don't know, uh, uh, some kind of, uh, you know, commercial uh, political commercial. And yeah, in a contrast that to, uh, Serge Sarkian's, Imagery that uh, I still remember for 2008 elections, just the most ridiculous photos that you can come up with, that were the main uh, sort of <laughs> on, his, on his website. Uh, yeah, different, different. Uh, again, different. Uh, you know, level of sophistication there.
1: I I remember seeing just one picture, and I'll. I think we should move on. But uh, the Republicans published one picture when they're like strategizing over the campaign, and it was all the top brass. It was Vanetsian, uh Ashutian, and so forth. I I didn't see a similar picture from Robert Cochera, but I would think that if there was one, it would be like one or two people from the party and like 10 different consultants. So, you know, may, maybe I'm projecting here. But So quickly, uh, Aspet, there are 26 parties or alliances running. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a staggering number, considering that each one of those has to pay 10 million AMD drum deposit. Uh How do you explain the unprecedented number of parties in these elections?
3: Well, um, unprecedented since 2003 parliamentary elections, where there were about 23, 24 parties. I think uh, there are a couple of factors here, Hovek. uh I, First of all, uh, probably this is going to be the most competitive election ever in Armenia, <clears throat> because Pashinyan is weak. Um, after the defeat, after the humiliating defeat, and his inability to, uh, you know, manage the country afterwards, or even before. So now you see that a lot of people, a lot of different political parties are seeing an opportunity that they might get in to the, into the parliament. So that's one. The other thing, um, I think, is that a lot of people, at least, again, I might be projecting, as you did, Hovic, probably, is that... You know, uh, I don't think that the current government, this is also the first time that the current government, the incumbent government, doesn't have absolute control over administrative uh, resources to utilize. They do have some administrative resources, Pashinyan and so on, but it is not an absolute control like you would have seen under Serge Sarkisyan or Robert Kocharyan or in the last, uh, you know, uh, 25 years or so. So um, I think all of this has encouraged a lot of uh, different political parties to throw their hat into the ring and, uh, and participate don't forget that a lot of political parties were actually formed also. It's not just about parties participating in the elections, but also a lot of new political uh, forces and a lot of new political parties uh, having uh, been created in the last, um, you know, uh, four, five, six months as a reaction to the defeat, uh, as a reaction to the war. So the political life uh, or the political landscape in Armenia, I say, hasn't been this revamped. For a long time. Uh, and also, everyone thinks that they have a fighting chance uh, to get in. Of course, uh, with Kocharyan's uh, PR machine, but also his message reaching people that is changing uh, fast. But um, I would expl- I would think that these are the two major reasons: the lack of uh, administrative resources by the ruling party, as well as the uh, overall um, sort of uh, lack of or overall increase in political interest, uh, the need to do something now if you were to look at at least 12 you know f- uh, 15 of those parties they're just they don't know what they're doing they're just running but still uh, there's a need to do something and that's i think uh, the main reason why you have such a increase in number of participants
1: so i just wanted to come back up to the 50,000 foot level uh, on the polls and take stock of some of the basic facts okay three parties or blocks are comfortably clearing the threshold so far and those are civil contract uh Hayastan dashing and uh Bargavaj Hayastan or Prosperous Armenia now party one uh, in, w- in which uh, which uh, um, which the republican party is participating in and bright armenia are not too far from the threshold. So, uh, the threshold from bat being uh, 7% and uh, Bright Armia being 5% respectively. Uh, The others are far behind. So, the question that I wanted to ask is, uh, Emil, you know, do you think that these are going to be the top main contenders or uh, basically is it too early to rule out other parties um, or do you think there could be drastic changes that prop up uh, or help produce a potential dark horse candidate and if so who do you think has a chance to catch up?
2: Well like I said uh, what's different between this election versus the others is that in others we would always have sort of a new force uh, rise and content if not for the top couple of spots not top two one two three. But to make it into parliament, I think that's still possible this time around. If we look at some of the other elections uh, previously, for example, Gurgen Narsenian, who is now running on the civil contract, is a businessman who is running on the civil contract list. I think he's number 10. Uh, Gurgen Narsenian managed to buy off just enough votes back in, I think it was 1999 election and also 2003 parliamentary election. M- you know, he-, he made a, just like a businessman calculation. How many votes do you need to get to that 5% threshold? And he would just, you know, invest just enough in a, in a particular area or particular areas to be able to generate that support without even massive uh, PR campaign or anything. And manage to sort of squeak in into the parliament and create the parliamentary faction. Uh, you might have players like that, but I'm not sure if they they have that level of, uh, you know, ability to calculate. For example, this uh, Tigran Arzakancian, who is a former, I think, owner of the Yerevan, one of the brandy companies in Armenia. Um, I forget the name uh who you great know valley. great valley yeah uh he's uh you know sort of invested money into uh aram Sarkisian's party and uh trying to <laughs> trying to it's it's not I'm, I'm wouldn't rule out the possibility that you know something like that would happen in a party like that would uh get into uh the parliament with just crossing the threshold but you know like i said you need to have a little bit of a ability to uh, both have the resources and being able to deliver that sufficient result uh, at at the polls uh, to be able to squeak in, but I think that's that's the the extent of the surprises that we should expect the, the major preferences seem to be built in
1: and last question before we move on a lot of the political calculations now focus on uh, you know potential post-electoral alliances, because it looks like uh, none of the candidates so far has uh, the capacity to get the majority required for the, uh, based on law, which is 50% uh, plus one. Uh, So the biggest question I have is whether if Prosperous Armenia and Hayastan Dashing both clear the elections, uh, is there any question that they would not form a coalition? Because if that is the case, then... Most scenarios were, you know, of the potential, uh, shape of the future parliament would probably, uh, would rely on whether the highest and prosperous Armenia would form a coalition.
2: I would defer this to Aspet. Aspet, if you maybe more, f- uh, fresh in terms of reading of the electoral law, what would happen if, uh, there is no clear victor and, uh, there is no majority, uh, created? What would happen with the second round?
3: well uh, before you get to the second round there there are, there are six days in in which uh, during which they can make a coalition now based on Holik's question if prosperous armenia decides to throw its weight and be kingmaker Zarukyan decides to be kingmaker with uh, for either one but i doubt that you will do it with civil contract then you know there there is no need for a second round again it all depends on the number of other parties there now if none of those happens in six uh, within six days a new elections would uh, would take place i think by mid july mid to late july in which case the top 2 uh, parties would run uh, for uh, for seats, and they will be a- a allocated seats so that they can get a comfortable, either one of them gets a comfortable, a stable majority, which is not uh, 51%, rather 54%. Also, don't forget that here we also have a weird system of allocating the seats for national minorities, four seats, that could make it or break it. And as of now, civil contract is uh, in a better position to get those seats uh, uh, than uh, the highest
2: And how are those seats allocated? Just directly uh, proportionate to the vote uh, results? So for example, if it's 40 and 40, then uh, the two top parties split uh, those uh, minority seats or what?
3: Uh, no, it all depends on the list. Uh, uh, if uh, the candidates or if the parties have uh, minority candidates on their list, and where do they fall on the on the list? So, for instance, if a Civil Contract would get, let's say, forty seats, and for instance, the Yazidi representative or the Assyrian representative is fiftieth and fifty second, uh, they automatically receive those. Uh, so, automatically, the the forty percent sort of uh, is translated into let's say forty two percent by adding those. So, it's a bit of a convoluted system. Uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the electoral code,
0: Aspet, and what's the advantage that civil contract has in this case?
3: Well, they have nominated actually the names on the, the names of uh, three minorities, except the Russian one. Uh, actually, pardon, they have four minorities nominated mm-hmm. on their list, uh, whereas the Dashink has only uh, a Russian representative, a representative of the Russian minority mm-hmm. uh, on their list. So that's the advantage that they have.
2: Interesting. Yeah, that's that's an oversight right there for Hayastan.
3: Yeah, this is a system that, you know, the former uh, regime, uh, uh, especially David Chunyan, the former Minister of Justice, he was the brainchild, it was his brainchild to come up with this uh, system. And obviously it was um, made on, you know, mail order, if you want to call it, uh, sort of delivery for an electoral system that would favor the incumbents or favor the party that has the administrative resources to win a majority or a plurality of the votes. And of course that wasn't put in uh, in service or put in place uh, as much for the benefit of the Republican Party as much as it was for the civil contract or my step alliance. So within this context, I think, um, you know, uh, the thing is that no leader, at least... uh, uh, explicitly have mentioned. Everyone has explicitly mentioned that they are not going to go into a coalition with Pashinyan. So Pashinyan's only chance now, or two chances, two options: either to win outright in the first round and have enough comfortable, uh, comfortable majority, or go into the second, or, or hope that in the first round there aren't enough coalition partners against him. Uh, in which case, he will go to the second round, and then he will be fighting tooth and nail uh, for a majority.
1: So let's move on to the other topic uh, of our show today, which is Pashinyan's trip to Europe. Earlier this week, Pashinyan made a two-day trip to Paris and Brussels, where he met with the French President Macron and uh, European Council President Michel, uh, among others. Uh, Emil, what's your take on the timing of this visit uh, and the issues discussed with the European officials?
2: No, it's just a typical pre-election uh, campaigning by Armenian leaders, uh, if we look at the in the past uh, they would always try to uh, both actually the the leaders uh, of armenia or incumbent leaders uh, and uh, sort of government like sir sarxian others uh, to try to visit major capitals uh, prior to the elections especially you know european major european also moscow right we with, the uh, with the opposition candidates, uh, Leon went to Moscow just prior to the election, I think. Uh, and, uh, Rafael Onision, uh, did that, I think, just after the, the vote, or maybe just before, I can't remember. But, uh, yeah, there's gonna be, I think, it's supposed to be another visit to Moscow, or at least, uh, that's, that's the plan to, uh, to get there. And, uh, another, another thing that is a little bit different is that, uh, of course, the Armenian candidates would, in the past, say, uh, uh, to, since 2008, especially, they would visit Artsakh, right? Uh, to, uh, sort of take pictures. So far, uh, I think the only, uh, leader that visited Artsakh in recent months, uh, well, today I saw a picture from Van Etian, and I think Tsarukyan visited a little bit earlier, but neither Kocheren nor Pashinyana visited. Uh, so it would be interesting to see if they go to Artsakh or not. Uh,
0: and Vehapar Karekin. Well,
2: he's not running in the election. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> that we know of. Uh. That we know of. <laughs>
1: Aspet Kochiken, do you think France or the EU have anything to offer diplomatically uh, or on the ground uh, or anything to Armenia at this point, Uh, especially taking into consideration the call for Parshinyan to bring OSCE monitors to the Armenian-Azerbaijani border?
3: Yeah, well, uh, the short answer is no, uh, although with, in, in a meeting with the French Senate president, Gérard Larcher, uh, afterwards, uh, Larcher actually uh, called for more OSCE involvement and called uh, the usual jazz with territorial integrity of Armenia, return of POWs, cultural protection of cultural sites, and so on. But uh, I don't think uh, that the, o- the OSCE, I think, is not necessarily in a good position these days. And I think it has become more and more irrelevant or less relevant, depends how you look at it. But uh, Pashinyan's visit, I mean, uh, the meeting with Macron, the meeting with uh, the president, uh, the president of Senate, meeting with the mayor of Paris and inviting her to come to Yerevan and so on, are sort of, mm, you know, I think, as as Emil mentioned, these are like PR Uh, components uh, to boost his support, especially those who are, uh, those among his supporters who are not necessarily pro-Russian. And uh, the key point actually that in his visit to Brussels and after the meeting uh, with also the Belgian prime minister, uh, Alexander de Croix, uh, he also met with the Charles Michel, the president of the European Council. And uh, the thing, the main issue there, surprisingly, as if they're living in a parallel universe, is the issue of EU Armenia, EU-Armenia comprehensive And uh, enhanced partnership agreement within the European neighborhood policy that, yeah, we support Armenia and its continued uh, reform in the justice sector, this and that. So it was more lip service. And I'm not sure if the statement... Yeah, and I'm not sure if the statements that they're making, uh, all these leaders, uh, is something that uh, supports Putin. I mean, obviously, you can put, always put a twist on it uh, and present right. it that, oh, Europe is going to come to save us and so on. But uh, the European politicians, or uh, usually diplomats and uh, world leaders, when it comes to these issues, they explicitly try to stay away from endorsing uh, one candidate over the other. Of course, Trump broke that mold. Uh, in the past. But, you know, it was an anomaly. But uh, they're quite careful. They're quite careful not to in any way, support one candidate over the other, and they're remaining within the larger parameters of, uh, you know, judicial reforms, governance, this and that, and within that context, uh, they're going to be willing to work with whoever is going to come next, and you know, their concern is not to anger any side, so that not to push, if in the event of Kocharyan winning, not to push him more into the Russian fold, or rather, you know, to keep uh, doors uh, open and communication open with uh, future cooperation. I would point out that the Russians'
2: position has also been very similar in the sense that they don't want to get involved into, you know, picking f- favorites in terms of uh, who's going to win the election. Like, they, uh, it's clear that Putin has right. made clear that, you know, it's his body, his yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, body absolutely. is Kocharyan. Pashinyan absolutely. is not his body. But uh right. but he's not he's not overstepping that line where he's playing Kocharian support openly supporting Kocharyan in this election or you know, like like Lavrov visiting, there is no meeting with uh Kocharian, there's no call with Kocharian. Mm-hmm. Kocharyan is doing is proving that he has support domestically uh, to Putin as well, because that, I think that was a po- that was a question for Putin. Does Kocharyan mm-hmm. have domestic support? Mm-hmm. And he's proving that right now. So that, that that's 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 a very important aspect of this. Yeah. Um, so um, Russia has signaled that basically
0: whoever comes on board. The agreement is the agreement, it has to be. Fulfilled. Right, I was
3: going to say that, I was going to say that. I mean, Putin's non involvement quote-unquote, is that he knows that whoever's going to be coming in, you know, he's going to have some, some kind of a control or some kind of a, a working, very close working relationship with them. I mean, if it's Pashinyan, it's going to be more in terms of having him from his polls. If it's Kocharyan, he's like the trusted ally or the trusted sort of uh, protege, if you want to call it.
2: No, no, not not protege, not protege. That's uh, the Kocharyan is not Putin's protege. Uh, you know that's that's very clear. History uh, is there to uh, you know to be consulted. Uh, Kocharyan became president of Armenia before Putin was in the picture as a national figure in, in Russia. So um, uh, I'm talking about
3: the current circumstances. I mean, in, I mean even in the current, current
2: circumstances, circumstances, even in the current circumstances, yeah, Putin, yes, of course, uh, made clear his position. Uh, that he thought it was wrong to jail Kocherian, but he didn't, uh, go out of his way to a free Kocherian, right? He offered sort of to Kocherian to come to Russia to avoid jail, but, you know, Kocherian preferred to stay in jail rather than go to Russia. So that, you know, signifies, uh, a different sort of relationship there. But, uh, um, anyway, uh, what I would point out also is that if Kocherian wins this election, Armenia will catch up with Georgia in terms of uh, having an, an, a, a sitting government not not re-elected, right? Kotzakashvili lost his election to Ivane Shvili um, after also after losing the war in uh, 2008. Uh, so that would sort of uh, be uh, surprisingly a step in the direction of Armenia developing these mechanisms, not necessarily democratic, wholly democratic mechanisms, but at least mechanisms for changing uh, a failed leader, right? Uh, and not just uh, the way it happened in 2018, but also through election uh, as now. Interestingly,
0: Ilham Aliyev has more to bring to the table during these elections than than others, but not in the way that he thinks or he was hoping the outcome would be.
2: I don't know what he's hoping for. I mean, he's got so much uh, that he didn't deserve, uh, you know.
0: Right. But I think that his preference is generally to have a very weak Pashinian back uh, Re elected, but everything he's done has strengthened Kocharyan's hand.
3: I think it's not about just weak Pashinyan, just Pashinyan. I think at this point would be good because by default he's weak. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, from, yeah, from Aliyev's perspective, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 they are, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're in Shushi, you know, that's like, uh, I don't think he ever imagined that. Really. Right.
3: Absolutely. I have to mention here that, you know, earlier when we were talking about elections, but more uh, more also related to this is that I can't help but uh, sort of quote, uh, allegedly uh, a quote by Vyacheslav Molotov, the former uh, Soviet foreign minister, if I'm not mistaken, in 1950s at a conference, he said, the trouble with free election is that you never know who's going to, how they're going to turn out. So <laughs> I think uh, the Russians have let the elections run, take their course in our Armenia without interference. They don't need to, uh, because at the end of the day, whatever their elections are, are going to yield, they know that they are going to re- uh, remain or retain uh, their dominant role in Armenian politics, either through Gharapakh, uh their presence in uh, nagorno karabakh or uh, in terms of uh, close ties with uh, Armenian leadership.
2: Yeah, and you have to you have to look at some of the other uh, like most of the Russian allied states, of course, don't really have competitive elections. You know, Belarus or I don't know Central Asian states. But if you look at Abkhazia and uh, even South Ossetia, uh, which are of course quasi states, but they are Russian allies in a sense, uh, Russian dependencies. Um, they are uh, known to have uh, fairly uh, boisterous and uh, you know uh, unpredictable elections. Um, and uh we've had a couple of cases already where you know there would be some clashes after the elections, and the Russians would try to mediate and try to settle things, and the things would get settled eventually but basically uh that may be a reflection of how russia uh deals with uh allies that do have some um you know uh uh lack of uh monolithic uh politics uh in like one one leader states. Uh, so that's, and of course, Kyrgyzstan is another example uh, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, that that that, that sort of uh, challenges that uh, overall one-man one rule situation.
1: Interesting. There's so much more we can talk about, but we'll have to leave it here. Thank you, everyone.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Thank you gentlemen.
0: That concludes our program for this weekend Review episode. We hope it has helped your understanding of some of the issues from the previous week. We look forward to your feedback and your suggestions for issues to cover in greater depth. Contact us on our website at grung.org or on our Facebook page, ANN grung, or in our Facebook group, grung Armenian News Network. Special thanks to Laura Osborne for providing the music for our podcast. On behalf of everyone in this episode, we wish you a good week. Don't forget to subscribe to our channels, like our pages, and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.